Nehemiah chapter seven, uh, just to bring you up to, up to speed, if you, uh, if you haven't been following along with us, if you have been here regularly, it's good to kind of get a little running started to, as where we are. But Nehemiah is part of the third wave, if you would, that has come back to Jerusalem after being the, the, the southern tribes being taken off into captivity. Returning now, again, the third wave. The first wave came back. Zerubbabel uh, brought, a, brought a group of people back. Then Ezra a little bit later, and, and they rebuilt the temple. But then it sat for many years. The, some people, they were moving back in. Some houses kind of getting life started back up again. The temple and worship going on. But the walls of the city had never been, had never been touched. They had never been rebuilt. So because of that, they sat very vulnerable, um, not even really an organized city yet because of that. And the Lord laid it upon Nehemiah's heart when, when he heard about the condition of the city from his brother who had taken a visit to Jerusalem. He heard about it. It broke his heart. It, the Lord laid it heavy upon him and definitely laid a call upon his life that he was going to be used in a way to go and do that. So we talked about he prayed and he fasted for four months. The day came and it was the opportunity for him to go before the king. And the king not only granted the request to go, but sent him with all of the supplies needed and all of the, all of the credentials that he needed to get this all done. And we talked about the process then through the, the next subsequent chapters leading up to where we were last week. The, the work was being done, but knowing that, again, the enemy does not want this to take place, the surrounding enemy keeps coming and attacking, the last thing in the world that they want is for Jerusalem to be reestablished, the Jewish people to be reestablished in the land. So they're coming against it. And we talked about that from a spiritual standpoint and how we can make that in our lives today, that when the Lord is, is guiding and leading us to move forward in his purposes as his children, as, as those that are called by him to be, to be workers for him, for his kingdom purposes, we can expect two things. Remember what they are? Anybody help me out? Number one, the hand of God upon us, right? And the second one is the hand of the enemy against us, right? And so moving through that, we saw that going. But as, we stayed, as they stayed focused on the work of the Lord and ignoring the enemy, not getting distracted by that, the wall was rebuilt in 52 days. Amazing when you think about it. I mean, it would be a, it would be a feat. I was thinking about this a little bit ago. It would be a feat to think 52 weeks if it took a year to rebuild that wall. Because remember, they didn't bring in a whole bunch of hired uh, professional wall builders. These were all just, just people that loved the city, loved God, loved the people, and helping each other and doing this 52 days. So we see as we begin now into chapter 7, the walls are done. The gates are hung. Everything is in place. The enemy has been, has been uh, uh, defeated in, this, in, the, in their, their attempts to come against. Not that they're going away. They've been silenced. But we see, some, so we see this victory that is, that is placed. You, you think the work's done? Yeah. yeah you're, 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 you're perceptive in that. The work is far from done. We pick up now chapter 7, verse 1. Now when the wall was rebuilt... And I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed. Then I put Hanani, my brother, and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, in charge of Jerusalem, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. Then I said to them, do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, 
and while they are standing guard, let them shut and bolt the doors. Also, appoint guards from the inhabitants of Jerusalem, each to his post, and each in front of his own house. He appoints this, and we'll come back to this in a moment, the two, his brother and this other, this other gentleman, Hananiah, as the, as the overseers, if you would, for this project, but Notice he says, we're going to put, the, the enemy, he, they realize they have defeated the enemy to this point, but the enemy is not going away. The enemy is going to redouble efforts, and, and the concern that they have now is, you know, when the gates, are, the gates are open during the day, he says, don't open the gates until it's in the heat of the day. Well, when everybody's awake, so that, so that if, if they open them too early while everybody's asleep, the, the enemy could sneak inside while that's going on. And he says, while the guards are still on the wall watching and, and, and have everything, that's when you close and you bolt the gates, being totally prepared, standing firm, if you would, not allowing the enemy to have one inch of territory back. Would you turn with me, keep your finger here, we're going to go to the New Testament for a little bit and look at a couple of things. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, because as we talk about this, again, this very real physical enemy that is going on, the, the, the spiritual parallels that we've been talking about continue to run uh, as we move forward in this. And Ephesians chapter 6 it's, it speaks of the armor of God, and I, we'll run through that real quick and then come back. Let, start with me in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Verse 14, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. Now, having girded, that word indicates that the armor has already been put on. So I want to come back to standing firm in a moment. Let's just run through the armor. We don't have time to go through it in great detail. Many of you have probably already done studies on this. I encourage you to do that later if you have not. But girded your loins with the belt of truth. Truth. We're going to come back to that later on uh, tonight. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, which, which you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one, take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The full armor of God in this fight. Not, not leaving anything, anything exposed. Interesting, when we look at this armor, and to come back to the stand firm, the ongoing battle that we have, when we look at all of this armor, and if you do the study yourself, you'll see there is not a piece of this armor that protects your back. Every bit of it, the shield, the breastplate, the belt, all of it protecting the front. Why is that? Because, guys, the battle's in front of us. We're not supposed to be turning and running. As a matter of fact, the Bible says resist the enemy and he will flee from you. So, and that is exactly the point I want to make here tonight, because he says three times leading into this verse, and finishing with the first word here in verse 14, stand firm. Stand firm. Do not give up one more inch of ground. This, this idea of standing, it's funny, because standing is an active verb. 
How do you actively stand? <laughs> well, we get this idea of standing around, not doing anything. No, this, this idea of standing firm, again, not, not giving up an inch. The, the, when Paul wrote this, no doubt he was, he was chained to a Roman guard. He's looking at the Roman guard fully decked out in his equipment and, and drawing the parallels there, getting the visual pictures we put together. And when he's talking about him standing, the, the, the sandals that Roman guards wore weren't like the flip-flops that you wear around and I wear around to go out outside. They had spikes or knobs on the bottom of them to make sure that their footing was secure in battle. They weren't slipping around in battle. And to stand firm, digging in, holding ground, again, not giving an inch. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 2 from here. Revelation chapter 2, last book. Verse 18, again, Jesus speaking through John to the individual churches at the time, but in a, in a great, in a study through these, we see again the parallels to our day. But verse 18, and to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, the son of God who has eyes like flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze says this again. So Jesus speaking, notice he says, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. If we're gonna stop at verse 19, doesn't that sound like exactly what you wanna be as a Christian? It speaks of, I see it. Jesus, see, I know your deeds. I know what you're doing. Your love, your faith, the service, perseverance, the deeds you're doing now are even greater than at first. What it says next, though, but, but, I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality, eating things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent. She does not want to repent of her immorality. What Jesus is saying is you guys are doing a lot of great things. The problem is you have allowed, you tolerate false teaching to come in. You tolerate the, the worldly things from outside to get into the purity of the church, of the body of Christ. I was talking with with Michael just before the service, and he was talking to me about, you know, again, a lot of these things that are, that are coming out now, and there's a college now, I don't remember which one he was telling me, but they're having this ongoing debate about what should be considered free speech and what should be considered hate speech. And on the poster of this debate that they're having, five things listed all point directly to what we teach the Bible of God, or the Word of God says. You know, again, that Jesus is the only way to heaven, you know, and, and marriage, marriage definition and those types of things. What should be defined as hate speech? Understand, guys, that's not what Jesus is talking about. That's not what we're going to look at some more that because that's outside. What Jesus is saying is you've let that infiltrate the church. What the world says in these, these things, these tolerance things and all of this kind of stuff, you've let that infiltrate the church going against the clear teaching of God's word for the sake of, can't we all just get along? 
can't, you know, you know if, we're gonna, if we're gonna grow into a big old mega church, we can't really call sin, sin, and do those types of stuff. People might not come back. Let's soften it down. Let's, let's and, and, and that, that penetrates into the church then, tolerating things. Uh, you know, again, that are just against the word of God. And we see it everywhere in the, in the so-called church today. Jesus goes on to say, talking about, again, how he will punish her and those that follow her. Look at verse 24. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan. Now, look at now, that's, what, that's what he calls it, the deep things of Satan. What the world might call, you know, we'll just, we'll just bend it a little bit. We'll just tweak it a little bit, make it a little bit more palatable, make it a little bit more relevant for today. Jesus said it's the deep things of Satan, as they call them. I, I place no other burden on you, those that resist that. Nevertheless, notice this, what you have, hold fast until I come. Stand firm. Hold fast until I come. Turn back just a couple of pages to the book of Jude. From Revelation there, chapter two, just go back a couple of pages. The letter right before Revelation is Jude. One chapter, verse three, Jude actually, the, one of the brothers of Jesus, writing this, verse three, I like this, because he says, you know, I wanted to just write you this friendly little letter <laughs> just kind of to encourage you, you know, kind of, hey, you know what, but look what it says. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. Once for all, what we hold in our hand, once for all handed down. We don't have any license to alter this. We have, no, there, we have no permission to make any changes to the word of God. Once for all, handed down. Notice this verse four, though. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. And that ties it back, if you would, to what got me down this path. Placing the guards on the wall. Making sure that, that, that no, but nothing creeps in unnoticed. And guys, that's all of our responsibility as the body of Christ making sure that nothing creeps in unnoticed. And he goes on for the next several verses talking about, about their wickedness and, and everything. But again, they've crept into the church already in Jude's time and, and certainly in greater, greater amounts today in the so-called church. But verse 17 in, in, in Jude there, but you again, distinguishing us as the true body, but you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. That they are saying to you, in the last time, there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. There will be mockers. There are gonna be those. You, you narrow-minded Christians, you, you know, this and that, and, and mocking what we believe the only one way to heaven that, you know, all of these different rules and all of this different kind of stuff and mockers. The problem is, again, that's coming from, again, other parts of the so-called church. And we see that so much today. I think I've shared with you before that I, it broke my heart a couple years ago. I was trying to get some local pastors together just here to, to get together and pray. 
and I, I put out in this email to them, I said, since we agree, and I thought we agreed based on their doctrinal statements on what they had on their websites, since we agree in these certain things and, you know, about, about Jesus and, and those types of things, but one of them was the inerrancy of God's word, that it is infallible, that it is perfect, that there are no errors. The one guy emailed me back, he said, so if, if I don't believe that God's word is, is inerrant, that the Bible's inerrant, I believe that there's, there's problems throughout it. If I don't believe that, I can't be a part of your club. And he put it in, in quotation marks. And i like, this isn't about being a part of, of a club. This is, this is the body of Christ. And if we tolerate that, it says, yeah, you know what? doesn't really matter what you think about the, about the Bible. We're going to get more into that if I ever get back to chapter seven, but we, we can't compromise these things. We can't. He says, he, there, there will be mockers. They, there are those, and we hear it all the time, and again, from within the church that says, you believe, you really believe that, that the creation narrative in Genesis 1-1 was how it all went down? Yes, I do. Word for word, from the first word, in the beginning. And I believe that in the beginning happened just over 6,000 years ago. And those mockers say, 6,000 years ago? What are you going to do with all these billion-year-old fossils? (laughs) I don't have anywhere near enough time to go into that. (laughs) Anyway, there will be, but the problem is that mocking comes from within the church now, too. There's so many people that have embraced this idea that, okay, well, we'll get, rid, we'll get rid of that. We won't talk about that. We'll give the evolutionists that. We'll be able to come up with this hybrid creation-evolution thing, and we'll call it the gap theory, and we'll, we'll give them that. And we don't necessarily need to believe that Jonah got swallowed by, by a great fish and then three days later thrown up on the beach. We'll, we'll give them that, that that's, that's more allegory. It is not. It's a factual story. Jesus believed it was a factual story. (laughs) Anyway, there will be mockers. These are the ones, note verse 19, who cause division. Cause division. Again, unity is a big thing that we're going to see when we get back into Nehemiah. They cause division. Worldly minded. And here's the key, guys, devoid of the spirit. They're not led by the spirit of God. That's why it's easy for them to throw things out, to change things or whatever. They're devoid of the spirit. I have people tell me often, and I, and I appreciate what they're saying, but they, they say, we appreciate the fact that, that you teach the word of God word for word on, on through. And I'll tell you, don't thank me. The Holy Spirit doesn't let me do anything else. <laughs> I can't get away with it. He's got a very short leash on me, and I thank him all the time for that. But devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved... Building yourselves up, and again, we do that through studying the Word of God. Again, we'll get to that in a little bit. On your, on your most holy faith, again, the faith that was once for all handed down to us, praying in the Spirit. Again, I love that. Remember in, a couple of weeks ago in Romans chapter 8, 26 and 27, the Spirit interceding for us as Christians when we don't know how to pray? The Holy Spirit praying in the Spirit Keep yourselves in the love of God, awaiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Lord Jesus Christ. Back back in Revelation, remember the love that was talked of there? A different love. 
The love of God spoken of in, in Jude is the love that comes with truth. You, you maybe heard it said that, that, that truth without love is brutality. We're supposed to speak the truth in love. Truth without love is brutality, but love without truth is fantasy. It doesn't exist. It, it's, it's not real, genuine love. He goes on, again, how this should play itself out. Notice this again in us. Have mercy on some who are doubting, those that are going through and struggling with their faith and really wrestling with the whole age of the earth thing. It's not saying throw them out. Have have mercy on them. And, And notice as it continues to go, save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and make you stand in his presence holy and, and blameless with great joy. Again, praising the Lord Jesus. Paul writes in t- to Timothy in 2 Timothy, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil having been held captive by him to do his will. Speaking of those individuals who are wrestling and struggling with this. Speaking the truth in love. Gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. But never, ever, ever wavering. Giving up one one inch. Never tolerating anything that goes against that, against the word of God, against what the Lord Jesus taught. We, we, we don't have that wiggle room, if you would, not one inch. And that's what we see Paul speaking of in Ephesians, to stand firm. That's what, that is what the, is the passionate heart of Nehemiah. Now that we have this built, now that we have this set, we're not gonna let the enemy sneak in. We're not gonna let him come in when we're, not, when we're not paying attention. We're not gonna let him come in when we're, when we're sleeping. Remember, Jesus tells the, the parable um, in Matthew 13 of the, of the wheat and the tares, the, again, sowing the seed out, the good seed. Jesus speaking of that, the, the good seed that goes out, the word of God that goes out, but then the enemy at night, while the workers are sleeping, Jesus said, comes in and sows tares among the wheat and they grow up together. And as they're growing, you can't tell the difference until it gets, comes time for the fruit. But again, the, the watchman on the wall snuck in unnoticed uh, while they're sleeping. The watchman on the wall, guys, it's our job to watch. It's our job to stay. And notice, in each in front of his own house, not just here in the body, not just protecting the body of Christ, but in our own homes, making sure, parents, what, 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 what are your children seeing? What are, what are they hearing? Making, make sure that they, they know the truth. Teach them the truth. We stand firm in the word of God. And again, once we get to chapter eight, we'll see that a little bit more. One last little note here in these couple of verses as we start chapter seven. Notice the two that Nehemiah puts, puts in charge because nobody can do it alone. We're not called to be lone rangers in this whole thing. We're called to band together and work, but specifically the two here that he puts in charge or he, he puts in, in a place uh, uh, underneath his charge but overlooking, and notice why he chose them. 
uh, Hananiah's brother and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress in charge of Jerusalem, for, that tells us it's because of this reason, he was a faithful man and he feared God more than many. <laughs> Two things, they're faithful and they fear the Lord. They're faithful. They're faithful to God. And because they're faithful to God, they're faithful to those that God puts in authority into that position. They submit to that authority. I think it's interesting that this guy, the commander of the fortress, submits to the authority of Nehemiah over him. Nehemiah, the cupbearer? Are you kidding me? Fifty-four days ago, you were in, <laughs> you're back there sipping wine for the king, making sure he doesn't die. And now you're going to be here? telling me how to do things. I'm the commander. But he submitted to that because it wasn't about a title. It wasn't about his quote-unquote experience or, or the, his quote-unquote qualifications. A work of God was taking place. And he noticed that, that Nehemiah was the man that God chose. And so he submitted to that. He was faithful to Nehemiah. He was faithful to the Lord. I have to tell you, one of the things that I am so blessed by is the, is the, is the godly men that God, and I, I've shared this with you guys before, but the godly men that God has brought around, around me as assistant pastors and, and elders in this church, quite frankly, that are more qualified than I am. But none of them are seeking position. None of them are seeking anything. They, they realize that their, their call is to come alongside and, to, and to, to, to assist me, to hold my arms up, to pray for, for me and my family and for you, and, and realizing and honoring God in that. And it, it is such a, it's such a blessing for me, and, and whether you know it or not, a blessing for you guys to have such godly leadership in our church that, that love the Lord, that fear the Lord, it says faithful men and feared, more, feared God more than many. Proverbs 29, 25 says the fear of man brings a snare. But he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. The fear of man brings a snare. That's the, I've seen that happen over and over and over again. People that desire position, desire power, desire different things within the church because they want to be noticed by men. They, wanted to be, they want people to see them in these positions to, so that everybody can see how smart they are, how much they know, or, or all, what their gifting is. And that's a snare. That's pride. That will bring, bring somebody down very, very quickly. It says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And here we see, and he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. These men, faithful men, fearing the Lord, and God exalts them. And the Bible's full of examples like that. I mean, we see that in Joshua, right? Many people, several people rebelled against Moses' authority and questioned that. One that never did was Joshua. And if there was one man, outside of possibly Caleb, that, that probably could have, based on qualifications and the fact that he was young and the fact that all of these other things that could have questioned it was maybe Joshua. He never did. He, all, his, he, he supported Moses. He was right there for Moses all the way along. Jonathan's another example, son of King Saul. But instead of pursuing the throne, he recognized David was God's man, and he, he surrendered and submitted to that. So the Bible's full of examples like that. And again, when... When we do that, God does what he's going to do. Jesus said that, you know, if you're faithful in little things, you'll be faithful in greater things. 
Right? You know, God will give that opportunity and, those, and that type of thing. Again, not, not out of pride, not out of anything else, but again, because of grace and because that's how, that's how God works. Here, do this. Be faithful in this. Prove that you can be faithful in these things, and God will give you more and more to do. And here, God rewards their faithfulness because they're in this position because they're faithful. They, they no doubt were faithful in those positions, but they got these positions because they were faithful in the previous positions that they had. Well, let's move on. Verse 4. Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few and the houses were not built. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogies. Then I found the book of the genealogy to those who came up first in which I found the following record. These are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his city who came with Zerubbabel. This is going back to the first chapter in Ezra. As a matter of fact, from this point, through most of the rest of chapter seven, you, it's almost a mirror of Ezra chapter two. Um, and I, I would encourage you uh, to go ahead and, and read through, because we're not gonna. We're gonna make up a little time here by skipping the next several, several verses that that uh, talk through all of these things. But if you do go a side-by-side com- comparison with Ezra chapter 2, there are some differences. There are some, some discrepancies, if you would, in the, in, in the record as you hold them up. And it's funny how those are the things that people will point to right away and say, oh, see, the Bible's full of errors. Uh, no, it's not even full of discrepancies or differences. That, that's easily explained when you're comparing records that are about 100 years apart. When you, when you put them up next to each other, there's, there's differences in, no doubt, corrections as, as more people came and little things like that. Uh, copying where the names are, are spelled a little bit different. It's interesting how people have to, have to cling to something to try to disprove it. But Warren Wiersbe, um, in his, when he's saying Ezra chapter 2 and, and Nehemiah chapter 7 here is the Old Testament's Hebrews 11 which is kind of cool to think of because he, what he's saying with that is here is a list of, of the men and women who were faithful, who trusted the Lord. It took a lot of faith to step out and come and do what they did. They left, many of them left, even though they were slaves in the foreign land, they left not too bad of lives. I mean, they, they, were, they were working there. They were part of things. They had, they had, a lot of them had homes, and a lot of them had things. They were, they were servants, but they, had a, they left that to come back in a huge step of faith to come back and to do this. And so, uh, again, you can, you can read through this. I, I've said this before in these long lists. Sometimes, sometimes it can get a little tedious. And you're like, why in the world would I read through that? And you don't have to. That's not, you're, there's not an entrance exam when you go to heaven as to, you know, when you get, get through this type of stuff. But I'll tell you what, if your name was in here, you'd look for it. <laughs> if you had a relative's name who was in here, you'd look for it. There is a book that we as Christians, our name is written in, the Lamb's Book of Life. And, and I tell you what, you're going to want to say, yeah, there, there it is, right there, right there. There's a really dumb movie back in the 70s. Maybe some of you saw it, but these, when the new phone books came out, the new phone books are here, the new phone books are here. And he goes, and he goes, there I am, there I am, right there. So excited. Anyway, 
The Lamb's Book of Life. I don't know where that came from. Strike that from the record. Okay. So let's, uh, let's jump ahead to, to verse 60. All the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. These were the ones who came up from Tel Malath, Tel Harasha, Kerub, um, several other names here, but they could not show their father's houses to the descendants who were they from Israel. We talked of this before. There's, there's several that are listed here when we were back in Ezra chapter two, same thing. The problem with these, they, they were Levites, but they couldn't prove it. They couldn't prove their, their, their lineage back to Levi, and that was hugely important because you could not serve as a function of a priest unless you had Levi genes and could prove it, G-E-N-E-S. You had to be able to prove that or you, you, would not, you, had, you were left out of that. You were considered unclean, unable to, to serve in that capacity. So these guys, unfortunately, were left out of that. Um, again, the whole assembly, verse 66, together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. Again, the detail. Not rounding it off to roughly 7,500, no, 7,337. And those were the servants. 245 male and female singers. The horses, they counted the horses, 376. Mules, 245. Camels, 435. Donkeys, 6,720. Some from among the the heads of fathers' households gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 gold drachmas, 50 basins, 530 priest garments. Some of the heads of fathers' households gave into the treasury of work 20,000 gold drachmas and 2,200 silver minas. That which the rest of the people gave was 20,000 gold drachmas and 2,000 silver minas and 67 priest garments. So the people giving to the work that is being done, notice no, no individual names are given as to what's given, just, just giving to, to, to the work that's being done there. Now the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their cities. When the seventh month came, the sons of Israel were in their cities. So the wall's done, gates are up, guarded, houses being put together inside the, inside the walls, outside. Things are starting to come together. Now, we know I'm not even a building guy. I'm not a, a construction guy, but I know it doesn't matter how well the house is built if the foundation is poor, right? You got to have a good foundation to start. And so the walls built on a solid foundation, the temple on a solid foundation, we're moving now as we start shifting our focus now that the physical work is done to the spiritual well-being of the people. And we see again now chapter 8, is that's why this is so important, the foundation with which they will have moving forward. Again, so important. And for us, especially even today, chapter 8, verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book. I love that. Bring the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, of, of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday, roughly five to six hours, in the presence of men and women, those who could understand. And all the people were attentive to the book of the law. 
Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium which he had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Masiah on his right, and Pediah, Mishael, Melchajiah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshalem on his left. There we go. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people when he opened it, and all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Here we see again the people gathering together, and notice again, right away in the first, gathered as one man, unity, united together. And what are they uniting around? The Word of God and the God of the Word. They are, they are uniting together. We talked about divisiveness. We talked about that before, where it comes in and dividing and speaking against and, and, and getting in. United together which was in front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book. If you were with us during our, our study of Ezra, the, this man, an amazing man of God, and the one verse in particular that I, that I love to go back to, and I have several times as I've been doing some disciple, discipling and different stuff with some people since, Ezra chapter 7 verse 10 speaks of this man Ezra, and remember the three things it talked about if you were part of the study. He studied God's word, he practiced God's word, and he taught God's word in that order. You have to study it to know it, but you have to practice it. You have to live it. It doesn't, it doesn't do any good to just have a head knowledge but not live it out. And as we study it and as we learn it, then we are to teach it and to share it with others. And Ezra, this, this great man of God, they go to him. They say, Ezra. <laughs> Get the book. <laughs> Get the book. Bring it out. Bring the law of the Lord out. And so he brought it out, and he read it to them, to all who would, who would listen. And I love that again. When we're talking about the foundation, the foundation of the word of God, Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 7. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Again, not if the storms come, they're coming. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the wind blew and slammed against the house and it fell and great was its fall. Guys, storms and trials reveal the foundation that our faith and our life is built on. And when going through this again, this is now they're starting out in this spiritual journey together and it's gonna be based on the word of God. I'm gonna come back to this in a little bit. Let's keep reading verse seven. Also, Jeshua, Benai, Serabiah, Jamin, Akud, Shebaliah, Hobiah, Mahashiah, Kelatiah, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Haliah, the Levites, explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. 
they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. I have several words circled and, and highlighted through, starting, starting out at the, at the top, bring, bring the book. Verse five, open the book. Verse three, read the book. <laughs> and verse two, understand the book. Guys, that is, it is, it's so important, the word of God. We can never forget this. What we hold in our hands is the living word of God. Hebrews chapter four, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. This isn't just a bunch of words collected together. This isn't just 66 different individual books jammed together and the best-selling book of all time. It is the living word of God. Paul writes to Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That is why, again, why we put such an importance on the word of God here at Calvary Chapel. If you're relatively new here, this is what we do every Wednesday. We go through the Old Testament verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. On the weekends, we go through the New Testament verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. Why? Because it's the word of God. If you, came here, if you came here tonight to hear what I have to say, don't ever do that again. Ever. <laughs> I am, you want to come to hear the word of God, not the word of flawed. I, infallible, perfect, almighty God has given us his word. That is our foundation. That is why, again, we go through it. We go through it verse by verse. What does it say? And I, I think this is great. That, to read from, verse eight. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. To give the sense. Interpretation. What does it mean? That's why we, 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 I, I pause every once in a while and I share with you as I've been studying through and we look at the different words and, in their original text and what does this mean? And then, and then how do we apply that in our lives today? How do we take this story that has been preserved for us and take it up to and apply it in our lives today? All of the entire word of God. Again, Paul writing in the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. For this reason, we constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Again, the living word of God, performing its work in us who believe. As believers, the spirit of God in us, the word of God does a work in us, does it not? If it doesn't, you need to question whether, whether or not you're truly a follower of Jesus, whether you truly have the spirit in you. Paul, Paul writes in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, speaking, I'll just read through it quickly here. He says, and when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Yet we do not speak wisdom among those who are mature, or wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. We speak God's wisdom, wisdom in a mystery, the hidden mystery, which God predestined before the ages of our glory. And he goes on a little bit later, God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all the things, even the depths of the heart, depths of God. Now we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Freely given to us. We can know these things. Freely given to us. Not because of any kind of clever packaging that, that I put together and, and deliver to you. No, it's because it's the word of God. It's the word of God that is, that is sharper than to any two-edged sword. It's the word of God that goes, penetrates us even right down into our, into our thoughts and intentions of our heart. And, and it, it, it's the book, again, opened, read, reading the word of God. So, so important. Again, that's why we do it, what we do it here. Expository teaching. That is, again, reading the text, talking about the text. Occasionally, from time to time, we will we'll have what's called a topical teaching. The Lord will lay it on my heart maybe for a week or two to cover, to cover a particular topic that might be. But, but the problem with doing that all the time is we never get through the entire counsel of God. And perhaps you've sat through messages and they, they, they frustrate me because you'll hear two or three verses plugged in here or there, but the rest of it is just a lot of motivational speaking and just feel good type of thing. I, I, want, I want the word of God. I want to know what, what, what God says. And that's why, again, what we do, what we do. And it's such a blessing to see again how it changes people's lives. I, one of the biggest testimonies that I see is, is, in, my, is in my wife, Christina, who, who never liked to read now can't read enough when it comes to the word of God. She, and she doesn't, she'll get, a, she'll get a book every once in a while and read a chapter or two at a time and kind of go through that. But she is, she's got her face in the word of God all the time. And I'll tell you, one of her favorite books to, that she goes back to all the time, you won't believe it if I told you. You can ask her and double check. Deuteronomy. The word of God. The entire word of God. All of it. Old Testament and New Testament. One of, the, one of the biggest things that just, it totally, it totally blesses me. I, somebody came up to me again this, this past weekend and, and said again, like I mentioned, thank you for teaching through the word of God. I've come to know God's word so much more here and it's changing my life. That again, that I, get, I get no credit for that I, I, and I take none. <laughs> it's the word of God. I'm gonna be honest with you guys. I'm not smart enough to put together a message that doesn't contain 95% of the word of God. I'm not, I can't do it. So <laughs> that, I take no credit for it. I'm going to just read it. I'm going to study. I'm going to tell you what, what, I, what I learn and as I share it. And I encourage you to do that. That inductive Bible study, there, it's a different method. Perhaps you've heard of it. But the, the, taking a text, going through it, spending time in it. Taking, it's called observation, interpretation, application. Those three things. Observation, what does it say? 
Don't read into it. What is it saying? Ezra. They got Ezra to, to bring the book of the law out. Just kind of bulleting it out. Observation. Interpretation. What does that mean? And then again, application. What does that mean? And that's where it really can get personal, and that's what it needs to do individually. What does it mean to me? I, I can't, and that's why I stay away from it a lot. I can bring general application like I was earlier a little bit when we went into Revelation and talking about that type of stuff. I can bring general revelation. I can talk about or, um, application. I can bring general application to that. What that means for you specifically at your house the Holy Spirit's got to reveal that to you. And you need to be obedient to that. What does it mean to put that guard at your house? I don't know. But you will if you let the Lord tell you and you're obedient in that. The word of God is alive. It is active. And they do this. And, and the response as we, verse 9, Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest, and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Again, no doubt, because it is, it is cutting deep, hearing the word of God. And, and f this is what God expects. This is what God demands. And I fall so far short of that. But again, on this side, where we are, and that's why I love Romans 8. If you're here on the weekends and going through that with us, Romans 8 is just such, a, such an amazing chapter because it starts out with Christians. First of all, guys, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes, when we, when we look at God's word and we look at that and, and, and we know we hold it up and, and it, it should, we should mourn over, over our sin. It should tear us up as Christians. It should bother us. But again, as it says, verse one, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. We've been set free. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Romans chapter 8. They were weeping when they were seeing this, but they said, guys, we have the entire, the entire word of God, and this is a time of celebration, as we'll see here in a moment. Then he said to them, go eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who had nothing prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. All the people went away to eat and to drink and to send portions to celebrate the great festival notice, because they understood the words which had been made known to them rejoicing when they said, God, this is God's word for me, and I understand it, and I can apply it into my life, a reason for celebration. Then on the second day, the heads of the father's households, all the people, the priests, and the Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe that they might gain insight into the words of the law. Notice they come back for more, and that's, that's, this, that's what happens. The more you study and the more God's word is revealed to, me, to you, the more hunger you have, have for it and the excitement for more. They found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses to the sons of Israel that they should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. So they proclaimed, so, I like that, verse 15 starts with so, because they heard it, they read it, they did something about it. They proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, 
Go out to the hills and bring olive branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of other leafy trees to make booths, note, as it is written. James tells us, don't just be hearers of the word, be doers of the word. Hear it. Yes, again, mourning, weeping over it, coming under conviction as, as God, the, the Holy Spirit of God, as we're reading the word of God, comes under conviction. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but yes, conviction. Repentance. Repentance means to turn away from that which you are convicted of, that sin. Turn away and return to the Lord. Do what the word says. And it brings great joy. Notice as they do, they, they, they hadn't celebrated it in, in this way. The people went out and brought them and made booths of themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God in the square at the water gate and the square at the gate of Ephraim. The entire assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in them. The sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day. And there was great rejoicing. This was a festival of rejoicing, the Feast of Booths, but it says it had not been celebrated in this way. It had been celebrated since the time of Joshua in times of Solomon. We even saw it earlier in Ezra, but never like this. It says that everybody was in participating. Everybody was involved as, as this revival, if you would, broke out because the word of God came out and they were hearing it and they were being explained it. And I, I, this, <laughs> I love you guys. This is a Wednesday night and you guys are out here and we're studying Nehemiah. That's, that's awesome. You're giving, coming to time. So I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here, but he, going back to the, it says in verse three, he read the word of God from early morning until midday, five to six hours. And then verse 18, he read from the book of the law of God daily for five to six hours. And everybody's gathered around and they're like, man, I can't get enough of this. This is, this is amazing. And then when they heard it and they understood it because it was being explained to them, they were asking questions. I mean, I love, I love that in verse seven where it lists all those guys' names that I totally butchered. It says that they explained it to the people. They broke out into small groups. And they, they were explaining it some more and they were talking about it some more. And that, that's why small group fellowship is so important. It's, so, it's such a wonderful thing. I encourage you all to be involved in a small group at some point where you're, you're studying God's word. We talk about it in a lot of the small groups that we have here and we're gonna be adding more and more. So be looking for that. But a lot of them take what we talk about on the weekend in Romans and then get together in a small group and do just that. How do we apply that in our lives today? and ask questions and, and that type of stuff. And as they're doing that, it's like, man, I can't get enough of this. And they're rejoicing because they're, they're convicted, they repent, and they're obedient. And obedience brings joy, great joy. I, uh, I'll tell you, one of the neat things that we've witnessed here as a church, and it's not exclusive to Calvary Chapel Surprise. I'm sure it goes on everywhere that the word of God is taught. But I know it personally here because I've seen it happen several times. We have had numerous, I couldn't even tell you how many, dozens of people that have come here, come under conviction about a lifestyle that they're living, repent and come forward and, and make it right. And specifically with regards to living together without being married, specifically that one thing where they come and they're saying, you know, they hear the word of God, the Holy Spirit convicts them, they come forward and they say, you know, 
we can't do this anymore. This is, this is totally wrong. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move out, and, and we're going to go through marriage counseling. Many have done that, gone, gone through marriage counseling, got married together. Some who have children said, we're going to go. We tell them, go down to the, the, to the courthouse, get the marriage license. Come on back. We'll marry you right now. I mean, let's get this thing taken care of right now. We want to honor God with our That's That is only a move of the Holy Spirit because of the, the word of God penetrating, doing what the, only the word of God can do in the life of a believer, and then to see the response of that. And I'll tell you what, there's great joy when that happens. Some of those are that they, 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 they go out just as happy and full of joy as that, that new couple that did everything right they leave just as full of joy because they've, they've repented. They're forgiven. The blood of Jesus covers all sin. And they walk out of here rejoicing because they're being obedient to the, the call of God and the, and the work of God in their hearts. Again, he read from that solemn assembly according to the ordinance that was there. They just, they continually, the word of God, that foundation that we have. Well, that, that'll do it for tonight. We'll, we'll, Pick it up there, read ahead, start at chapter nine next week. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word, the living word of God that you have preserved for us. And Lord, we take it so, so for granted. So many of us probably have numerous copies of your, of your word at home, at our office, in our car, on our phones. We're so, so blessed to have that, Lord. I, I confess even myself at times and probably all of us, we just take that for granted. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what it does in our life. Lord, we ask that as we, as we move forward in the, in the days, weeks, months, years to come, Lord, that we would realize that that this faith, this living, vibrant faith, this, this body of Christ that, you have, that, that we are a part of, Lord, you have entrusted this to us and we are to contend earnestly for this faith. In a time when it seems like so many concessions are being made and so many efforts to try to see how uh, all-inclusive, this can be, Lord, the, it is all-inclusive because it's available to everyone, but Lord, it is not up to us to alter any of the requirements, any of the, the fact, Lord, it, it's you. You said no one comes to the Father except through you. You are the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, we pray that we would be diligent to defend that. Stand firm in that, gently correcting those, Lord, that you might grant them repentance. Lord, have your way in us. Lord, if there's anything, anything in our lives, even, even now that, that we've been wrestling with or perhaps pushing off, maybe hardening ourselves to, that you reveal to us that is not pleasing to you in our lives. Lord, we want to make that right. We turn from that. We turn to you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, again for who you are, who we are in you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a good rest of the week.